fact that uh, we're about to jump into an incredibly heavy text, and it's a, a little bit of a strange transition to go from like hospitality volunteers to uh, you know Jesus being crucified on the cross. And also, as I was thinking about this this week, and you come on a given Sunday, um, you're going to experience. You could you have potential experience a range of emotions. Uh, I just kind of name the. You know, the not awkwardness, but kind of the beauty of this is that on a given Sunday, if you're, you know, the worship will lead us to a place uh, to where we remember things about Christ that will make us incredibly uh, thankful, sometimes incredibly sad, thinking about our sin or wounds or things that we kind of still long for to see happen in this life and in the life to come, um, and just kind of naming the beauty of that. And it doesn't mean it's a contest of who's the most emotive in the crowd if you experience. No emotions uh, on, on this Sunday or any other Sunday. We're also just incredibly happy that you're choosing to be here. Um, and some people experience more emotion than others. Um, but just want to name that that is, you know, a part of church, uh, is that we oftentimes will experience a range of emotions in these 90 minutes. And it can feel like a lot, but it is kind of a little bit of kind of a microcosm of the Christian life. Uh, there's so many times where we, on a Monday may feel, you know, through the roof excited about life and what the Lord is doing. By Wednesday, it feels like we are on the, you know, on the throes of utter despair. And by Friday, we're kind of back up again. And that's also thinking back on Christ's life and thinking back on the fact that he wept. The friendship of the disciples. He was sad at times. Um, it was incredibly joyful at other times. And that is just a part of the, the life that we've been called uh, to experience and to live. So, all that being said, we're going to transition into Luke 23, and we're going to start in verse 30. It says 35, we're actually going to, I moved it to 32 uh, or this morning. So, 32, uh, kind of the end of that section in 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him, Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull... They crucified him there, along with the other criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, the king, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, saying, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you have come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Father, we are so grateful for... Your scripture. So grateful that this has been preserved for thousands of years. That though we read things or see things or even think things that are untrue, 
and can lead us astray, we know that we can come back to your Scripture to us to be a lamp to our feet, a light for our past. Father, we are grateful for the Bible. And Father, we sit under its teaching today and every Sunday, recognizing that it has authority over us. And may we be men and women who are willing to submit to it. Father, I pray that through the preaching of Your Word today, the imperfect preaching of Your Word, that You would use through the Holy Spirit, use it to convict us of sin, to remind us of truth, and to lead us into deeper affection with Jesus. Father, I thank You for our church and for the beautiful ways that You have brought this family of believers together. I thank You for the struggles that we experience at times for how, does it, how do we love each other well. Thankful for the opportunities we have to be sharpened by each other. And I pray for those who are traveling this week, who are heading into difficult situations with their families. I pray for wisdom and discernment. Father, I pray for those that are without work this time of year or have housing insecurities. I pray that you would provide. I pray that we as a church would be ready and willing to help each other and those outside of these four walls. May we sacrifice in response to the sacrifice of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would continue to grow us into men and women who look more and more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's dive right into the story here. And the beautiful thing about this is we are heading into Advent next week. So we're about to have a color change. We go from green to purple. Um, we'll spend the weeks leading up to, to Christmas uh, talking about uh, Advent, which means arrival. We'll talk about waiting and the King to come. And in some ways, this is kind of like a mini Lent. Like this, the colors are the same. We'll kind of talk about sin a little bit more in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And this passage today, as we kind of are, are looking ahead to passages talking about uh, the time leading to the birth of Christ, this is in here in the lectionary kind of schedule of readings, I think to remind us of what is to come. And so let that sink in today. We're going to talk about the end of Christ's life as we get ready to talk about the beginning of Christ's life in Advent. So our Lord and Savior Jesus has been nailed to a cross after suffering a horrendous beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He is slowly but surely dying, probably beginning to struggle to catch his breath from hanging there, the gravity kicking in, the stench of death is heavy in the air. The scene is full of excruciating pain, violent hatred, and just monumental evil. But as we think back to that scene that isn't all, there's also the presence of this amazing love, profound hope and remarkable beauty in a scene that reeks of death somehow. And what a picture of the kingdom of God this is. Somehow in this scene that reeks of death, there's still so much life. So why are these two dudes hanging there next to Jesus? We remember that there are two men there, but what is going on? Well, the Bible tells us that they were criminals, presumably crooks. Probably they were crucified, chosen to be crucified with Jesus as another way to mock and humiliate Him and His followers. 
The Romans thought that having Jesus associated with common criminals in his death was somehow ironically funny to them. What they didn't understand is that what, by doing this, they were fulfilling the Old Testament prophet that Isaiah predicted 700 years prior. He exposed himself to death, Isaiah 53 says. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. As I think about these two men and their conversation with Jesus, one major thought comes to mind. How we respond to the crucified Christ makes all the difference in this life and the next. The scene of the cross was profoundly ugly. Jewish leaders are mocking Jesus as he dies. So were the Roman soldiers. The two men crucified next to Jesus, one of them joined in on the scorn, saying, one of the, the Scripture says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And you wonder what this man who was mocking Christ, what he saw in Jesus hanging next to him. Apparently all he saw was a phony, a broken, defeated man who pretended to be someone that he really wasn't. A fraud, someone just too good to be true. In short, this man who did not believe, he was resistant to Jesus. Resistant to truly accepting Jesus for who He said He was. Brothers and sisters, we may not be men and women, men or women who are willing to yell at Jesus on a cross. We may not be willing to mock Him with our outward words, but when we do not take Jesus seriously for who He claims to be, we participate in the same kind of resistance. We resist Him when we choose to believe what's popular in culture compared to the words of the Bible. We resist Him when we minimize His role or His call on our lives. We may not resist Him actively by yelling at Him on a cross, but we resist Him with our passivity. We sometimes, like Jesus, I was thinking about this after Pastor Matt a couple weeks ago used a LaCroix can to... So to give a different illustration, but for some reason it really stuck with me, the can. We, I thought about this, and I thought about the fact that we kind of resist Jesus. We think about Jesus kind of like we like our sparkling waters. I would like a soda with just a touch of flavoring in it. So I would like not the real, I just want a touch. I just want to be minorly impacted by this. I remember when LaCroix first started becoming popular again, maybe, you, maybe you've been you know, a LaCroix a stand for years and years and years, but when it became popular again, there were so many wonderful memes and jokes out there where somebody said, LaCroix is like tasting carbonated water transported in a truck near bananas. <laughs> the flavoring of a single Skittle dissolved in carbonated water. Or my favorite is LaCroix tastes like you were drinking carbonated water in one room and someone screamed out the name of a specific fruit from the other room. And that's the flavoring you experience. And But when we think about the Jesus that is being, being explained in the Gospels, He is incredibly uh, calling us to be incredibly impacted by who He is. He is sitting there leading a life that is profound. It is, he's loving strangers. He's healing the sick. He's moving towards the broken. He's moving towards enemies. He is calling us to be slapped on one side of the cheek, to be willing to be slapped on the other. 
asks us to go one mile, to go the next. He's calling us in this incredibly profound life of following Jesus. But what we love to do instead is just kind of pick and choose a few things we like about Jesus, let that little bit of flavoring come into our lives, but then remain remain mainly the same as we were before. We resist Jesus when we resist the invitation to have our entire lives transformed by Him. So the alternative, if that's the one guy on one side, the guy on the other side, the alternative, the other convict, he sees Jesus for who He truly is. And in this, he comes to understand that he is incredibly forgiven and incredibly valuable. This other convict, he's experiencing the loving forgiveness of the Son of God. His sin, his shame, he's standing up there or hanging up there with all of his, his, his past kind of on display. He's not up there for no reason. He understands and we see from, from Luke, the author of this passage uh, in, in Luke 23, we understand that he is not wrongly convicted. He's exposed and the Son of Man sees that And he doesn't offer him shame, but he offers him forgiveness. So what did this man see when he saw Jesus? He saw Jesus in a very different way than the accomplice. Here's a man, Jesus, suffering horrendous physical pain, but as he, as he does so, what does he do? In the beginning of this passage we read, it says that he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He offers a prayer of forgiveness to the people who are tormenting Him. Intuitively, the second thief knew he was witnessing something extraordinary, incredible and unique. He knew that he wanted to identify with this stranger who was dying next to him. Instead of resistance, he chose repentance. Unlike the other thief, the one who took... Jesus, unlike the other thief, this one took Jesus seriously. And how can we tell? Because he responds, like John the Baptist called people to respond in the very beginning of the Gospels. He responds with repentance. He admits he's a sinner. He knows he's absolutely and forever unworthy of God's mercy to him. He says, we deserve this. We have those words in the passage. We deserve this, not Him. He did nothing to deserve this death. The man who was with Jesus that day in paradise offered no excuses, no self-defense. No one else is blamed for how his life turned out, the decisions that he made. And secondly, he approaches Jesus in faith. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Simple, sincere, straightforward. This is the Gospel. If you're ever going to come to Jesus, here's a picture of how you come to faith. Without excuses, without justification, but you come by faith and in faith in Jesus. This man is honest about his sin. Diane, my wife and I have been married for 17 years. And like people who have been married for this amount of time, woohoo, I love that. Yeah, I don't know where that's from. Uh, you have no idea what I'm about to say either. Uh, 
we have a number of ongoing arguments in our marriage. We'll call them, uh, <laughs> yeah, woohoo's going to get quieter in a second. A lot of what we call long-term lively discussions. And one, one of those debates is over who is the worst driver between the two of us. We're about to head on a trip uh, to Texas. I'm just gonna, it's gonna rehash, we're going to rehash this probably on Tuesday. But it usually happens when I'm driving. So I'm driving on this side and Diane's over here. And I, I will, everything's you know, cruising along, and all of a sudden I hear this gas. This, <gasps> and early on in our marriage, when she would do this, I would also gasp and be like, <gasps> "Like, what did you see? Like, what happened over there? Like, what did you? Is there like a bear coming out of the woods? Is it like a child, you know, needs our help on the side of the road?" And she would, but no. What happens is that she would gasp and then be like, "Did you not see how close you were to that person?" And now over time, I know when she gasps, I take a deep breath and I'm like, I understand what's going on. She's going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. But in the midst of that, early on, a couple of years ago, I remember I responded and I said, babe, I don't know why you get so nervous. I'm clearly the better driver between the two of us. And she always, she was always flabbergasted at this when she firmly disagreed. And at some point I explained very plainly to her, I said, you have been in an accident. I, on the other hand, have never been in an accident. At this point, at this point, she can no longer stay quiet, just like she is right now. Can no longer stay quiet. And she blurts out something like, Drew, what in the world are you talking about? So I calmly say, if you, if you let me finish, what I was about to say is I have never been in an accident when I am awake or the other car is moving. Sure, I fell asleep one time, ran in the back of a U-Haul, like who hasn't done that, Diane? Sure, I backed into a parked car before, like they were not moving. Sure, there's another time when I was speeding through a, a church parking lot, church slash school parking lot, and kind of went a little too fast and ran over the hood of an Acura Integra and had to walk into the school and be like, whoever owns the white Integra, like, they're not driving home today. I'm really sorry about that. But again, was that car moving? No. So, I have never been in an accident when I am awake and the other car was moving Case closed. Like, we're done. Uh, moving on to this. And needless to say, we agree to disagree on who is the worst driver. But I, when I explain this to you, a lot like when I explained it to Diane, you probably are thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, this is the worst argument I've ever heard to justify the behavior of your driving. And honestly, that is how how we so often look at our sin. We so often look at our sin and say, well, I mean, yeah, I'm a little greedy, but like compared to those people on like the fancy part of town, I'm like Mother Teresa. Like I'm giving stuff away. I mean, yes, you know, I, I turned a blind eye to that person in need. Yes, I knew this, you know, member of the church is going through a difficult time. I just kind of avoided them on Sunday, but you should see the other things I've done in the past. Or we will look and say, yes, you know, there's some things I've done in secret, but like nobody knows about those things and probably everybody else is doing them as well. Of course, but is it really, is it really, you know, right and wrong? Like, yeah, the Bible seems pretty clear on this, but, you know, culture is kind of like gray on it. So maybe I'll just kind of slide into how they think about this category of sin. It sounds so good to us 
when we justify it, but it sounds absurd to the Lord when we try to justify our sin. Friends, in order for us to both enter into a relationship with God and to maintain a healthy relationship with God, so both the non-believer, if you are a non-Christian here today and you want to understand who is Jesus, how to enter into a relationship, but also if you've been a Christian for 50 years, to maintain a healthy relationship with God, we have to accept the invitation from a loving Savior to be honest about our sin. And Jesus is so clear with this. He says, I've, come for the, I've not come for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you're willing to go to the doctor, you have to first willing to admit you need help. Luke 18, which we read a few weeks back, my favorite passage in the whole Bible, a religious dude on one hill looks over at the deeply sinful tax collector and says, ugh, at least I'm not like that guy. He's justifying his own sin. At least I'm not as bad as that guy compared to the tax collector that stands before the Lord, beats his breast, and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus is clear that that man walks away justified. Look at 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. So what does that mean? It means that when we get to the confession of sin, we take that seriously. That we don't skip that part of the service, that part of the liturgy, just because it's uncomfortable or awkward. It means that we call sin for what it is. Sin. It's not just a mistake that you made. It's not just a mishap that you had. It may sound old school to some of you, but we think it's actually the most loving thing we can do. There's many of you who have sat in our office and come for pastoral counseling, and there's some times where, yes, we will talk about wounds and recovering from wounds, but there's other times where we'll look you straight in the face and say, you have a problem with sin, and we need to get to the root of that. And we tell you that because there's been men and women who have looked us square in the face and said, you have a problem with sin, and it's the most loving thing they can do. And we do this, when we do this, we take eternity seriously. This man's recognition of his sin is what led him to ask the question, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what this man does, he understands his sin, but he also even more deeply, it seems like, recognizes that Jesus is compassionate towards sinners. He's trusting that the Son of God can and will forgiveness because He's witnessed this love. I mean, while these people were, taught, were taking Jesus to be crucified, He's literally saying, forgive them. They're about to murder me. God, forgive them. This is who Jesus was and is. He takes the punishment we deserve and dishes out the forgiveness that only He can offer. There's a story from a pastor I love, a guy named J.D. Greer up in North Carolina. And he tells this story uh, that I'm sure was passed down to him, but there was a pioneering family, so out on the plains, so I think hundreds of years ago, and they see or smell this enormous brush fire coming their way. And so it's so big, this is you know, pre-cars or airplanes or anything, and so there's, they, cannot, they, cannot think, they cannot possibly run fast enough to get away from it. So the dad gathers the family into a little circle, 
he's probably about the size of this stage, he said, and he starts, he's, the, the story goes, and he sets the ground on fire all around him. And he places his family right in the middle of the burnt part. And he does this because as the fire comes by, the fire that had already been burned, that area that had already been burned, was not touched by the brush fire. And the story helps us see that Jesus is the one who took the fire for us and then welcomes us in and says, I'll hold you while the punishment, the fire for all of your sins goes right on by. And church, this is the Jesus that we get to follow. And for some of you, this is the hardest part to believe because you get that you're a sinner, but you struggle so hard to believe that you're actually forgiven. And maybe for some of you, this has been your experience in life or has not been your experience in life to be both sinful and forgiven. There's been a time where you were growing up and you failed miserably or you flunked a test or you got sent in school suspension. Instead of responding with both an understanding of your sin and forgiveness, you just heard anger from teachers or you just heard hatred from a parent or you just got punished from a grandparent. And these moments are incredibly powerful to us as individuals and our understanding of Jesus. And it's one of the reasons that we as Christians, it's our calling to embody this because how we embody it prepares someone's, someone for their ability to understand the Lord's love for them. But if that's you, what I want you to do as we are going to be quiet before the Lord, as Pastor Matt comes up in a few moments to lead us through communion, I want you to think back on that time where you utterly messed up, where you sinned. And you remember back to the person who could have responded with love, but they didn't. And I want you to picture Jesus right there with you. I want to picture him seeing you in your brokenness and your sin, being fully aware, and that's scary for a lot of us. But I want you to picture him there and then him looking up to God saying, Father, forgive Drew. Father, forgive James. Father, forgive Brittany. Father, forgive Amy. And then I want, them to pick, I want you to picture Jesus turning to you, saying your name, and saying, brother or sister, we get to spend eternity together in paradise. That same Jesus who looked with compassion on this man as he's dying on the cross, he looks at you and I with that same incredible compassion. May we let that sink into the deep parts of who we are. Let's pray. That you are a God that does not ignore our sin. You're a God that invites us to be honest. But in doing so, you offer a love and forgiveness that is out of this world. Father, may we experience that either for the first time for the non-Christian that walked through these doors today or for the millionth time again this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.